So Alhamdulillah, we've been reading from um, this text, Minhaj al-Abidin by Imam Abu Hamad al-Ghazali, Alhamdulillah. And, you know, I'm really proud of everyone. Usually it's quite a few people here, but of course, understandably so. Next week we won't have classes because, like, you got a lot going on, man. Um, maybe we'll do something else, but we won't, like, we won't have class. We'll f figure something out. Maybe the people can, like, need a break or whatever. Um, but, you know, I'm reading to you this, this to you like we read with our student students, like in, in like a seminary. So it's actually very commendable. You don't even have a translation of the text, right? Like, that you're doing this. And I just want to say it's been a pleasure, alhamdulillah, um, this semester, especially the, uh, constructive ideas and critical thinking that you brought, alhamdulillah, to the table. So, as you recall, the text is really talking about these seven obstacles to living a life of faith and devotion, as seen by him. He doesn't say these are the only seven. He's just like, look, man, this is my experience. Um, and he divides them sort of into different categories. So, you recall the first was the challenge of knowledge. Right? Sometimes there's so many different parameters. Um, there's good and there's bad knowledge as we know in Islam. And then he talked about the challenge of Toba on this journey that sometimes we're overcome by insecurities or lack of value or we get too caught up in our own religiosity. So any of those could be a catalyst for failing to repent. So therefore repentance becomes not obstacle. Like the beautiful thing about repentance is he states like not using it is the obstacle. Right? So it's like incredible. Allah says, Like who doesn't repent? So he locates repentance as this centering force in our lives that protects us from bone-crushing despair and unhealthy like religious arrogance, if you will. And then we moved on to the next, and that's what he calls Aqabat al-Awaiq. And we said that the word awaq are those things that stop someone from starting something. So they're not just prohibitors. They're things that start, uh, stop us from starting. And he mentions a number of them, I believe four. The first was the temporary world, and that's what we've been talking about now. The second is people. Being around a lot of people or living for people. We talked about the idea of, am I, am I happy for what's intrinsic to me or do I do things because I think it makes people outside of even my sphere of influence happy? You can think about how social media now causes people to do things like that, sort of. And then shaitan and then the nafs. So where we stopped, uh, when we began to talk about the dunya, the temporary world, and he mentioned that there are kind of two tools we should use to navigate a dunya. And one of them was a tajarrud, is to peel away unhealthy attachments, and a zuhud, to be indifferent to opulence. And I, I think this is now the second week I'm going to say this. Anytime we hear these kind of abstract terms, we have to shine the light of fiqh on them. Fiqh is the science of particulars. That's its purpose. Its purpose is to look at things and, and we say taftish, to like break it apart and to see really what it is. So we stopped where he mentioned um, that one of the keys to like being able to, to deal with unhealthy attachments, like triggers, and what he means by unhealthy attachments are things that impact not only explicit religious practice, but like even what I'm responsible for. Like now you got to study. So if somebody came to you and you're like, let's go see a movie, right? That's like an unhealthy attachment. If they're able to take you away from, what's a priority? Right? So he, he wants us to think about living a life of discipline. And then he, he says a way to create this capacity is to think about what the dunya really is. So he says, and he poses this as a form of a question, if somebody asks, like, ma haqiqatul dunya, like, what is the reality of dunya? And then he, he, he does something here, it's really kind of uh, 
shows you that he's being very thoughtful in his writing. He mentions one of the definitions of a dunya. That must have been somewhat prominent in his time. So he says, Rahimahullahu uh, ta'ala, that some people would say, Taraktu dunya li qillati ghana'iha wa kathrati ana'iha wa sur'ati fana'iha wa khissati shuraka'iha. Said that some people, when talking about like defining dunya and talking about what it really is and how they kind of developed this discipline of attachments, which is dealing with the external, and then zuhid is dealing with kind of like my emotional attachments. Remember, we said that tajarrud is the physical attachment, zuhid now is like that emotional, psychological component attachment. He says, How do you overcome that? He said, Well, people would describe dunya in different ways that would bring about that reality, and one of the more popular ones is that. A person said, I left the dunya because of the small amount of its riches, like its real riches are very paltry. And because of its abundant challenges, and because of the speed of its ending, right? like it doesn't last long, life tends to move very quickly. Um, and the meanness of its participants, like the people that are in dunya, Maybe he lived on the East Coast, man. He says people are mean, but I don't necessarily believe that's true. Then he says, وَقَالَ شَيْخِ الْإِمَامِ رَحِمُهُ اللَّهِ And then commenting on this kind of popular discussion around what is dunya, he says his own teacher, we said this is uh, Abu Bakr ibn al-Wariq, he says, لَكَنْ يَجِئُ مِنْ هَذَا رَائِحَةً مِنْ هَذَا رَائِحَةُ الرَّغْبَةِ الْفَائِحَةِ his teacher said, however, from that description, there's still an unhealthy attachment to dunya. Like if I say, I left dunya because of its paltry riches, then if there were riches in dunya, then I wouldn't have left it. And I, you know, don't like dunya because of the quickness of its ending. Well, that means that if it lasts forever, you would what? You would like it. So he says, within this, there's still an unhealthy attachment. And what he's getting at is that the root of dealing with unhealthy things in our lives should be the expanse of the akhirah. That's it. Not what the dunya has or doesn't have. According to him, and we're going to bring up some, a few issues here that we can look at and feel free to differ with him also. He says, لِأَنَّ مَنْ شَاكَ لِأَنَّ مَنْ شَاكَ فِرَاقَ أَحَدٍ أَحَبَّ وِصَالَهُ like, so if you, if you don't like some, somebody, right, or something about those things, if those things aren't there, then you would like it. That's what he's getting at. More or less, this is his logic. And if you don't like something because there's like people there, it's not the actual thing, it's because who's there, then if those people are gone, then you would like to be there. So he's saying that, that, that this description is not dealing with the essence of dunya, it's dealing with what is in the dunya or what the dunya offers or what it doesn't offer. So he's saying it sort of misses the mark. Why would Imam al-Ghazali do this? Like, why is he doing this? Why didn't he just say the first definition? Why is he trying to compare things? To expand our thinking, to give us some critical skills. Um, sometimes with students, we would talk about the different way he wrote this. There's certain kinds, a style of writing called al-tibaq in rhetoric. There's a lot happening here, but this, it would take us off of kind of the purpose. Then he says, and this is where I want us to think critically. He says, فِيهِ مَا قَادَ شَيْخُنَا رَحِمُهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى He says, then, you know, the, the definition that sort of hits the mark, according to him, is the definition of one of his teachers who said, that the dunya is the enemy of God. Do you agree with this definition? He said, That the dunya, the temporary world, is the enemy of Allah. And you and I claim to love Allah. But if we love somebody, then we hate its enemy. 
So Abu Hamid, rahimahullah, he says, according to him, according to his understanding, understanding of one of his great teachers, rahimahumullah, inna dunya adu wallahi azza wa jalla wa anta muhibbullahi, yani, wa man ahabba ahadin abghada aduwah. Do you agree with this? The dunya is the enemy of God. Yes, sir. Oh, well, I don't think so, because Islam isn't like a monastic religion. We're not monks in the mountains just practicing only Islam and doing, having nothing to do with the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and things in the dunya can benefit us when it comes to worship, like getting a job, um, doing worldly things like that can uh, secure us to be able to worship better. Mm. Yes, Omar. Just in response to that, I don't think I don't think he's talking about leaving the world or like still like being in a monk state or something. But he was just referring to his worldly attachment and like just how do you how you feel about it? So like you can you can be working and getting a job, but at the same time not like realizing that this is like I'm just utilizing this for the worship. And I, mean, I don't know, maybe your world enemy is a bit extreme. Uh, I don't know, but yeah, like I, I'm not. So we have, we have one, mashallah, brother saying, bringing a very important point, right? Islam doesn't tell us to like abandon the dunya. And Omar is saying there's maybe nuance here. Yes? I'm taking two issues with that. I don't know what the correct answer is, but the questions that come to mind is say, why would Allah create his own enemy? Mm. And then, B, like this line of thinking is a little dangerous in the fact that I think like a lot of times Muslims think like everything will be handled in the dunya, everything will be taken care of, so they don't like, we don't take agency of our liberation now. Mm. That's something that's also advocated for in Islam is fighting for oppressed people, and yet we're all still oppressed, like virtually all of us. Mm. That's good. Yes. Yeah, I don't think the dunya is necessarily like uh, the enemy of God, but I think it's almost an enemy of us. Like, we have to actively be working, especially like in places like our Western places, uh, working against society in order to fulfill our son's duties. And so I think like we do have to take some kind of responsibility in that sense, because to a certain extent, like nothing in this dunya uh, actually matters unless you're using it to get closer to Allah. And so I think it's not necessarily his own enemy, but more so ours. Hmm. Reham, you had you were gonna say something? No, I was I was just thinking and I was responding to Ahmad when he said I was wouldn't he have specified if he was so specific with every other part of his language? Wouldn't he have specified if he meant um like attachment to dunya mm. And then I was thinking you know, You mentioned like to like if you if you love someone then you would hate the enemy. Right. So like the hate I think is like Kind of like you're just not not necessarily staying away, but like just not having an attachment. Like the contradiction is, in, and I also agree that maybe the word enemy is like like yeah, like why would Allah create His own enemy? I don't think it's like enemy in the sense that like you know it's like literally fighting Allah because that's like I don't think it's, it's correct mm-hmm. to say that. But I think enemy in the sense that the closer you might be pulled to dunya, the further then it is like it's kind of. Like in terms of attachment, I would say not not in terms of like how involved you are. Mm. But I feel like what he's aiming at is like it's kind of opposites. And if you're closer to one, then you're away from the other, and you kind of have to. I don't know. That's why. That's why I'm These are all really excellent um, suggestions, right? So if we think about the context, right, of his writing, you know, and how he writes. You know, Al-Ghazali likes to use metaphors a lot. Adu-Wallahi, of course, doesn't mean literally the enemy of God. He's trying to paint like a picture here. Um, We understand that the context here is unhealthy attachments, right? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you said, I think, sorry, I don't have your name, forgive me. Ru'af. Ru'af said, like Allah. Oh, Ru'af. Uh, uh, mashallah. <laughs> so Allah says, uh, and Allah made everything for you. So we actually have an, an important principle in Islamic law. 
right? That things are permissible as long as they benefit and there's no text to say they're forbidden. So our initial engagement with dunya is permissibility. So the context here are, are things that take us away from living responsible, righteous lives. That is that enemy. Right? And he's going he's gonna to explain this uh, a little bit more, but I felt that, you know, I actually put a red line under this to say, hey, because sometimes when we read, it's important that we try to think about what the writer is saying before we come to a conclusion. I sometimes catch myself, I'll conclude something before I really understand well what the writer is saying. And the more, like, I read this text, I taught this text a number of times and was studied this text a few times, the context is sort of what Omar is saying, right? That there's a nuance here that he's saying. He's not saying turn away and run away. I'm, I'm so happy you said that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Nor is he saying be negligent and give up your utility and just like sit back and chill, take it in the jaw. In, in, in this vein, right, standing up for justice would be not the enemy of dunya, would be key to Jannah. The Prophet said that a person will be punished in the grave. They will be asked, they will ask, why am I being punished? And they will say, Maratu bi mazlum faram tansuru. You passed by people being oppressed and you didn't help them. So we want to unpack his words with a little nuance and, and be able to, also it's okay to disagree with the, like a writer, it's not the end of the world. But I believe his, his the siyaq al-nas, as we say, like the context of what he's talking about is unhealthy uh, attachments. But this has to be clarified because sometimes people hear this and they start running for the hills or they use this as a reason not to get involved in working for people and helping others. And we, we want to be careful of those kind of, kind of uh, extreme ideas. Any uh, final thoughts on that before we continue reading? He says, after mentioning this, he says, قَالَ وَلِأَنَّ فِي أَصْلِهَا وَسِخَةٌ حِيفَةٌ أَلَا تَرَى أَنَّ آخِرَهَا إِلَى الْقَذْرِ وَالْفَسَارِ التَّلَاشِ وَرِضْمِ حِلَالِ وَالنَّفَادِ لَكِنَّهَا جِيفَةٌ دُمِخَتْ بِطِيبٍ وَطُبِخَتْ بِزِينَةٍ So again, he, he's trying to mention some things about like how we should locate unhealthy dunya. As I will begin to describe it now so we can think a little bit more precise. He says that the unhealthy attachments, the unhealthy things that take us away from responsible to Jarrud and Zuhid, I'm just going to paraphrase, they have been perfumed and made like looking nice to you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that shaytan zuyina nasi hubbu shahawat. Shaytan makes bad things look good. Zuyina lahum su'u a'marihim. It's one of his roles. And we talked about, I think, maybe it's a few years ago with some other students we were doing tafsir, how one of the goals of shaitan is to play with names. We see this in society now, right? The types of names that are used to describe people, the imagery used to describe people, is meant to create ideas that aren't necessarily correct. So people being killed in Palestine are just numbers. They're not described as human beings. Right? There's reasons for this. That, that keeps people from thinking critically. So shaitan does this, shajara, don't come close to the tree. The shaitan says, He changes the definitions. And you think about postmodernity, it's on steroids. So shaitan says, no, no, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't want you to come close to the tree because if you eat it, you'll become an angel or live forever. He changes mahiyat al-asha'a. Iblis. Iblis is the one who confuses. And also sometimes our own kind of evil inclinations do the same. So Shaykh Rahimahullah, uh, he's saying that, you know, don't be deceived by this. Like in its essence, it's short term, it's not long term. And its unhealthy attachments are beautified in ways that don't really represent its reality. 
Israeli. And I'm just summarizing there because he went kind of on this adjective rant, mashallah. So then he says, Dumichat bitibin utubihat bizinatin faktar bizahiriha al ghafiluna wa zahada fiha al aqilun. He says, and because of that, because of that false appearance, the negligent fall for it. Like they'll, 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 they'll get caught up. And the intelligent are the ones who know, like, let me negotiate. Right? Let me negotiate how I engage this. How I engage this. And if it is said, So after talking about tajarrud, now he's talking about this kind of internal attachment, zuhd. He says, it, perhaps it will be said, what's the ruling, what's the religious responsibility to being indifferent to the world? This kind of touches on the ideas that we were talking about momentarily, uh, a few moments ago, excuse me. Is it an obligation or is it something which is... I can choose. What do you think? What do you think the ruling is for zuhd in dunya? Is it like something like I have to do, like salah? Is it something I can choose to do, like, you know, four rakah before dhuhr? Or fasting on Monday or Thursday? You think it's fard or is it nafal? A zuhd. To not be indifferent. To be indifferent from like, Dunya, to have zuhd. We talked about its definition a few weeks ago. Zahid too means like I'm like indifferent to something. It doesn't consume me. I don't like the translation negligence because I may still engage something, but I'm not necessarily attached to it. We all have to do that sometimes in life, right? I have to utilize it without letting it control me. So that's kind of the idea here. How do I locate this? What's the ruling for this? And this is the second quality he said of being able to navigate this part of the journey. I'm exhausted, man. You guys, I'm 49, man. That's my excuse. I got three kids. MashaAllah. So he said, فَمَا حُكْمُ أَمْ هَلْ هُوَ فَرْضٌ أَمْ نَفْلُ For example, should I be zuhd from Fajr? Like my wife wakes up, baby, get up. Nah, baby, I'm, I'm, zuhid, I'm zahid from Fajr, baby. I'm going back to sleep. Or should I be zahid from the sleep? Two different rulings, two different situations. I need to get up and pray. Uh, you know, should I be zahid from something like illegal? Right? Should I be zahid from something which is obligatory or my responsibility? And the best way to understand this, and we talked about how Islamic law approaches abstractions, is what's the fard waqt? What's the fard of that moment? So I remember one time we were at this protest for B uh, BLM some years ago, and there was one sheikh, we traveled. There was one brother, he, he didn't really know that much. He's like, it's time to pray, it's time to pray, it's time to pray. And Sheikh was like, we can join the prayers, it's time to protest. Like at this moment, this is the fard. This is the fard now. We can do that later. Right, so it's called fard waqt, the fard of that moment. So that way also we're not using these kind of things to like absolve ourself, ourselves a certain responsibility. If you're praying and the person next to you starts to have a medical breakdown, should you keep praying and be like, oh, mashallah, I'm so pious, alhamdulillah. I have my khushu and salah, even though the person next to me is having a like, serious physical problem. Or should you break your salah and help them? So here he's saying, indifference to this attachment to dunya. Is it fard or nafl? Let's see what he says. Let's unpack his, uh, his advice. He says, Rahimahullah, inna zuhd yaqa'u indana fil halali wal haram. There is zuhd with things which are halal. And there is zuhd with things which are haram. And I believe he says, amma zuhdi, amma zuhd fil harami fafard. To be indifferent, to be away from 
haram is fun. To stay away from, like, evil? Of course. Allah says, Wajtani burrijis. Like, abandon evil. وَأَمَّا زُهْدُ فِي النَّفْلِ وَأَمَّا زُهْدُ uh, uh, I had it memorized a long time ago. I forgot. I'm sorry. I'm so exhausted today. Forgive me. naflun. And zuhud in halal is nafl. It means your choice. Because each, each and every one of us has our own things that may even be halal but could trigger bad behavior. And this is where people make mistakes. Like you'll see someone like, man, last night I was watching uh, whatever movie or game or tutorials on YouTube. You know what? These things are haram. Because I miss Fajr. No, they're haram for you. But not for everybody else. We have a, a very important legal principle. Right? The fatwa changed according to the people. Not everybody's the same. When the man came to the Prophet وسلم, and said, I'm fasting, can I kiss my wife? He said yes, because he was old. But that newly married guy, when he came in Sunnah Abi Dawud, when he came to the Prophet, said, Can I kiss my wife? I'm fasting. He said, No, man. Why? When you're young, it's different. Your, your sexual appetite is going to be much more greater than this old person. So the fatwa, according to some ulama who explained the hadith, the process of fatwa is different for this couple because they're older, this couple because they're younger. Yes. Now, most, most, yeah, most say makru, makru, right? Because like, it could lead to harm. Unless I know, right? unless, like, say a couple knows, like, you know, we know we can control ourselves. It happens a lot. It's very normal. Islam doesn't shy away from that. But usually the, the mufti, if he's responsible, is going to say, like, you, you're responsible for your own answer here. Like, I can give you kind of the, the picture, but as a couple, you need to choose what's best right, for you. So the Prophet he knew both. He probably did both of their marriages. So he knows them, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. One time, one of the companions of Sayyidina Abi Hanifa, somebody came to him and said, is there, is there tawbah for the qatil, for the murderer? He said, no. There's no tawbah for the one who wants to murder. And someone else came like some, some weeks later and asked the same question. He said, yes. Then one of his students said, like, but a few weeks ago you told the guy, like, there's no hope. He said, because that guy had the eye of revenge. He was going to kill somebody. This guy, he was crying out of repentance to Allah. So there's a different, different situation here. That's the challenge sometimes of internet fatwa, because they give you a very myopic answer without taking into, there's like 14 or 15, we'll talk about it when we study fiqh, 15 to 16 actually, different particulars the mufti wants to take into consideration when answering a person on social issues. Not a bad. So we see here, Sayyidina Abi Hanifa Faqih, one time somebody came to Imam Malik and they said, I, I swore that I would do this. Do I have to? And he said, yes. Then he said, wait, 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 where are you from? He said, I'm from such and such place. He said, no, no, you don't have to do it because that's like your slang. That's how you talk. So there is a deeper reading here that we want to think about. So not everybody has to be zuhid from everything. And that's why I really enjoy you sharing and you informing me because I'm sitting, I'm the one who gets to learn. I'm sitting with like 12 different brains. So the more you engage, the more you share, the more you even think critically or constructively, I'm learning from you. So, he said, when it comes to the haram, of course, that zuhid is wajib. When it comes to the permissible, it's up to the person. But the way of the salihin, of course, was to stay away from even the permissible, to protect themselves from falling into the haram. But everyone has to negotiate that for themselves. Because sometimes it, it may be the opposite, maybe engaging in some of those things is key to a person maintaining their iman. So there has to be a discussion. Has to be a discussion. So he says, Rahimahullah, 
ثم منزلة هذا الحرام المستقيم الطاعة بمنزلة الميتة المستقذرة لا يقدم عليها إلا عند الضرورة بمقدار دفع الضرر And here we can see something, the, the intersectionality of Imam al-Ghazali scholarship as a great legal theorist. That's really what he was, by the way. Most people in America, because of Barnes and Noble, they think Imam al-Ghazali is like the Sufi. He's like, no, Imam al-Ghazali in his core uh, existence was a judge, like was a, uh, excuse me, a legal philosopher. He wrote like, two really, really magnificent books on legal philosophy. And here he says that we should look at the haram when it comes to like engaging certain things in dunya as we look at eating the flesh of something that died on its own. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't allow us to eat that except in a state of what? Necessity. When I first converted, man, first few months my mother cooking bacon, I was like, yo, I think that's a necessity right there, man. Allahu Akbar, astaghfirullah. But, in all honesty, right, he's saying like, Right? We have a great axiom in Islamic law. That necessity permits things according to their measure. So, if you're on an island somewhere, I'm on an island somewhere, we're stranded or whatever, any situation. We have to engage in something forbidden to maintain our life or the lives of others, then we're allowed to do so in Islam. So the Shaykh is saying the zuhd from the haram, the only time there should be an exception, is a That having to do that is going to create a better good or sustain life. Uh, there's like so many, I think Dr. Intisar Rab in uh, Harvard, she has a great, her PhD I believe was on this, like Removing Harm in Islam, or her book she recently wrote, Rafu Ad-Darar. So the Prophet La Darara wa La Dirar, there's no harm or reciprocation of harm. So when that guy comes into the masjid of Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he uses the restroom, this is forbidden. The chapter heading in Bukhari is making it clear that that individual exposed himself to people. And we know فَزَجَرَهُ nas and ibn Malik, his narration says people wanted to like beat him up. And the Prophet said, دَعُوهُ Leave him alone. Why did the Prophet do that? Why did he tell him, let him finish? Then when he finished, he, they poured water where he used the restroom and then he said, اللَّهُمَّ رَحَمْنِي وَمُحَمَّدِ Oh Allah, have mercy on me and Muhammad and none of these other clowns. And then the Prophet said, you took something big and made it small, like Rahmah. The Rahmah of Allah is for everybody. It's not just for me and you, right? But why, why didn't he have him jumped on? Number one, they said, because his tribe would have declared war on Medina. So there's a greater harm. So the Prophet is thinking now. Number two, some of the Sahaba only had one pair of clothing. So if they would have jumped on him, they would have gotten what? On their clothes. Number three, he was a new Muslim. So like, he's going to be embarrassed. You think he'll ever come back to a community that like shamed him to this level? Number four, just pour water on it. It's no big deal. So here we see the Prophet wasallam allowing something bad to happen to achieve a what? The greater good. Which is all on not personal utility, but protecting people from harm. See, some, that's why there's more than 113 axioms came from that hadith. 113. So the Prophet والسلام, teaches us something really important. So the Shaykh uh, Abi Hamid, he says so. When it comes to being zahid with the haram, these people, these righteous people, look at the haram as like dead flesh, that the only time you're allowed to consume it is in the face of a darura bi miqdari dafi ad-darar. Yes. Like, 
like, I'm Muslim to the day I die, and then, like, they kill you. But, like, we have these rulings where we are like, okay, it's hadad to say, like, I'm not Muslim, because Allah knows what's in your heart in that moment, even though they're about to kill you. If you do it anyways, is it, like, haram? Allah knows, man. You know what I mean? Like, Allah knows the person's niyyah, right? Like, someone may, you know, be very sincere in that. Allah is kareem. To the hadith in Sahih Muslim of the man who orders his sons to burn his body and take the ashes and spread them all over the place. That's not in an Islamic way of janazah. Right? If someone, they, they said, yeah, such and such person died, some famous person died, and his body was burned, and, or her body was burned and spread all over. People like writing posts, putting them on blast, right? The Prophet said, Allah will resurrect this person and ask him, like, why did you do that? You say, out of fear of you. Allah will forgive him, even though it's forbidden. So, like these kind of answers, it's not, I don't have the right to say. We hope the best, inshallah. Someone who, you know, goes out like a real one, you know what I mean? <laughs> and they stand on the haqq. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, kareem, rahim. Uh, but we do know that, for example, like in Ramadan, say to Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, Say somebody's sick, and physicians and family have told them, like, don't fast. And they, and they go, like, full throttle and fast. This is not allowed because their harm, now the harm is greater for themselves. Right? The harm is greater for themselves. But someone who dies shaheed or whatever, Allahu Adam, we hope the best from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hope the best from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we would, like, encourage people, like, think... As Mutanabi said, like, think before your bravest two braveries. Sometimes we have responsibilities. I remember one time I was in a, I'm not going to say where, but I wasn't in this country. I was in a muzahara, like a demonstration. This is why I'm not allowed in some countries. So there was this brother, he was saying, Sayyid Qutb, we're going to go with Sayyid Qutb. We're going to all be in a prison like Sayyid Qutb. Right? He was really excited. And uh, I didn't know who Sayyid Qutb was, man. I was just a convert guy in the Muslim world. Rahimahullah. And then one sheikh, he said to him, but what if we can accomplish things without going to jail? He said, this sheikh's a sellout, man. This sheikh's like, no, no, I'm just trying to tell you. Like, maybe you can accomplish more, right? So sometimes passion can burn things up. But also sometimes being too docile you know, whatever Allah has put in the heart of a person, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen, as long as they're harming other people. What country was it? Uh, I can't say that, man. <laughs> just, it has to plead the fifth on that. It was not in Africa. I'll leave it at that. Huh? Yeah, I know, I know, I know we're going out with that. <laughs> it was in Malaysia. So. Yeah, the Fizila, they, they really like Fizila. So he said, yeah. <laughs> uh, so then he says, that type of that type of haram that we have to stay away from to maintain our obedience to Allah, is like the dead flesh al Right? The only time you come close to it is in the face of necessity. وَأَمَّا زُهْدُ فِي الْحَلَالِ فَإِنَّمَا يَكُونُ فِي مَنْزِلَةِ الصَّالِحِينَ يَا عُمَرَ نَبُوَ الصَّالِحَ مُشَلْ أَبْدَالِ كَلَمَةْ أَبْدَالَ السَّعَبَ عَلَى النَّاسِ So he says, you know that the, I'm not going to use the word he used because it's a specific type of term and uh, yeah, it's not something necessarily we agree with. Um, he says, but as for the zuhd and the halal, then it is going to be to the degree, we're going to just say like the righteous, righteous people around us, Salihin, people of taqwa. يَكُونُ عِنْدَهُمْ حَلَالٌ بِمَنْزِلَةِ الْمَيِّتَةِ لَا يَتَنَاوَلُونَ مِنْهَا إِلَّا قَدْرًا لَا بُدَّ مِنْهُ And again, like being zuhd and halal is once again like dead flesh that these righteous, to the righteous, the halal to them is also like dead flesh that they only would consume of it what they have to, to survive. والحرام عندهم بمنزلة النار and the haram is like hell, like fire, like hellfire. They completely cut it off. 
they have no relationship to it. So they don't even, like have you ever met someone who's doing like keto, one of those diets, and like bread comes and they like, they take it off the table? Like just like, I just don't even think about it. It's not my life anymore. I'm totally carb free. It's like, man, God help you, bro. Bring on the nuns. But like, it reminds me of how he's saying, like they have a racist from their mind. It's just not there. It's like fire, like hell. Like I just don't want to have anything to do with it. And he's talking about the righteous and their engagement with what's permissible, right? That they look at it like how the regular people look at the haram. And then with uh, what's haram, they look at it like halas, nar. They don't engage it. وَهَذَا مَعْنَى الْبُرُودَةِ عَلَى الْقَلْبِ بِأَنْ يُقْطَعْ هِمَّتُهُ عَنْهَا وَيُسْتَقْذَرُهَا وَيُسْتَنْكَرُهَا حَدًّا and he said, and this is explaining, remember a few, night, a few weeks ago, we talked about buruda, how like there's this part of zuhud, which is ghayru maqdur, which we can't control, which is like, man, I still want to do that, man. Like, I still like it. He's like, that's impossible for people really to get rid of. But in this situation, these people sort of reached this state where they were like, you know what, I'm just, ah, I don't even allow it to bother me. Of course, it's not easy. Uh, that's not a simple thing. Then he says, فَلَا يَبْقَى لَهَا فِي قَلْبِهَا أُولَىٰ يعني فِي قَلْبِهِ إِخْتِيَارٌ وَلَا إِرَادَةٌ Then he says, فَإِنْ قُلْتْ كَيْفَ يُمْكِنُ أَنْ تَسِيرَ الدُّنْيَا فِي شَهَوَاتِهَا وَلَذَّتِهَا عَفْوًا الْعَجِيبَةَ الْمَطْلُوبَ عِنْدَ الْإِنسَانِ بِمَنْزِلَةِ النَّارِ أَوْ بِمَنْزِلَةِ الْجِيفَةَ الْمُسْتَقْذَرَةَ الْمُسْتَحِلَّةَ like, how could the permissible be seen in this way to a person, right? Or how could someone have this kind of zuhud? How can someone see the dunya in this light when, as you're going to say in a second, we like are naturally inclined to it? Like, there's a beauty to it. And here he's talking about unhealthy. He's not talking about, like, good things, bad things. How do we get rid of them in that way? Because there's, there's a certain appeal to it. There's a certain shine. They call it what? The bling. Right? It has all that glitters isn't necessarily gold. There's something there that, a veneer that pulls us to it. So he says, Rahimahullah. فَعْلَمْ أَنَّ مَنْ وَافَقَ التَّوْفِيقَ الْخَاصِ وعلم آفاتها وقذرها في أصلها فتصير عنده كذلك. He said, you know, and here he points on the importance of education. And that's why the first obstacle was education. He says, for somebody who truly understands what the dunya is, what its dangers are, what its realities are, then that's not going to be a problem for them. So the variable here is knowledge. I have a problem with some of this, man. My problem with some of this is that he posits dunya as something just completely negative. Like it's like there's nothing, because he's also a neoplatonic oriented kind of guy. Like he looks at the world in a very negative way, very, like a very cynical way. Right? Doesn't take anything away from him. And also when we talked about his life, he went through experiences in his life that impacted him. Right? That impacts how he sees the world. It doesn't mean he's wrong, but it may just mean like maybe where I am and he is, we're not necessarily fit. I don't like to say, well, he's wrong. I just, we just don't see things the same way. But isn't the dunya also potential? Isn't it also something that we can use? Not only for our own self-gratification, but for Jannah? So how do you feel sometimes about kind of a very negative attitude? And I don't know if you feel it from his text, right? That looks at life in a very negative way. And we, we have to appreciate, Sayyidah Abu Hamad al-Ghazali is living at a time of extreme opulence in the Abbasi Empire. Like, it's crazy. People, people are like, 
extremely opulent. The Muslim world is extremely opulent, especially where he lives, in Baghdad and other places. But one of the things that we're going to talk about in a second, how to kind of balance some of this. So I would say not only by knowing the negative of dunya, but also the promise of if I live right, and if I use it for the right means. That's why Imam Ibn al-Jawzi, who is critical of Abu Hamid academically, he says, Inna dunya mazra'a, like the dunya is like your, your, your bustan or your garden, right? Or your farm, you gotta cultivate it. Not everything I plant is gonna have thorns. Everything I plant is gonna be bad or poisonous or cause an allergic reaction. And Allah says, وَلَا تَنْسَ نَصِيبَكَ مِنَ الدُّنْيَا Let me give an example of this. Imam Ibn Qayyim, he gives a nice balance on this. He said that, and this kind of touches on what you were talking about also. Saad, Saad is your name? Your name, sorry? Rayhan. Rayhan, Rayhan. I think Saad. It's one of them days. Um, Imam Ibn Qayyim, he says, that if zuhud meant to like neglect responsibility and turn away from what we're supposed to do, then why would Sayyidina Suleiman and Sayyidina Dawood ask for a kingdom? And this is where we have a problem with critical theory. The critical theory tends to posit all power as a problem. We don't agree with that. Right? Not, all power isn't a problem. And that's one of the lessons of Sultan Kaf. Sultan Kaf is teaching us the different types of power. And that's why the end is who? Does he use his power for good or for evil? Does he use the power that God has given him for good or for evil? For good. But the guy with the garden, that Allah has given wealth and property, did he use his power for good or evil? For evil. So, Islam doesn't see power as necessarily a bad thing. It's how power is used. And also, this is a way to keep the post-colonial narrative going, right? To discourage people from achieving power. Allah says, يَعِزُّ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَيَذِلُّ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَلَوْلَا دِفَاعُ اللَّهِ If Allah had not, وَدَّفْعُ also قِرَاءَةً push back people with other people, there will be corruption in the earth. So there has to be a give and take. And the Prophet said, المؤمن القوي خير وأحب إلى الله من المؤمن الضعيف وفي كل خير That the strong believer is more beloved than the weak believer. And talking about uh, Talut, Saul, in the Old Testament, Allah says, Zadahu bastatam fil ilmi wal jismi wallahu yu'ti mulkahu man yasha. Wallahu wasiun alim. We increased him in physical and intellectual strength. And that's called mulk. So sometimes we have to be careful uh, that we unpack, as we talked about, no matter the situation, abstractions, ideas. And we as Imam al-Muhasibi talks about, So we can achieve balance, inshaAllah. So Abu Hamad, rahimahullah, Allah bless him, maybe he's addressing certain problems in his community. Maybe he's seeing symptoms, so he's not wrong. But at the same time, like, we want to encourage people. When Abdurrahman ibn Awf came to Medina, the first place he went was the market. He didn't even go to the masjid first. In Sahih al-Bukhari, the Prophet saw him, he said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the market. The Prophet didn't say, Astaghfirullah, Astaghfirullah, going to the market. La, I got to get busy, man. I got to handle things. That's why Sayyidina Shaf used to say, Imam Shaf, Imam Shaf, he said, if I'm busy thinking about onions, I can't think about mas'ala. Bas'ala, no bas'ala, no mas'ala. If I can't bring the onions, I can't do fiqh, meaning the staple food. If it's not there, I can't serve. So Sayyidina Imam Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah, he said, look, Sayyidina Dawood and Sayyidina Suleiman, they ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a kingdom, especially Suleiman that no one has ever seen before. But no one was more zahid than Suleiman. 
So here we want to sort of take what he's saying and not, not I, I don't like to be critical for people without trying to understand what they're saying, but maybe we can add a cadence. Any thoughts on what I just said? In light of sort of Sayyidina Imam Abu Hamid, Rahimahullah, his ideas and trying to maybe shape it in a different way. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think uh, like in defense of Al I don't think like what you guys are saying it like anything different. I think like you're just like your view clarifies his. Because from what I'm understanding, when he's saying you should have zuhud and you should not have that attachment to the dunya, I don't perceive him as saying that you shouldn't engage with the dunya or see potentiality. But I think because like his concern is like the afterlife, even if you see that potentiality in the dunya, your attachment then isn't to the dunya. You're engaging with it mm. because your focus is what that can lead to in the afterlife, your mm. real attachment becomes the afterlife. Uh. So I don't think he's being, I think he can come across that way, but I don't think he, he means to be negative. Mm, sort of what Omar's talking about earlier, nuancing yeah. kind of his thoughts, parsing his ideas. Good, mashallah. Anyone else? Yes. I also think it relates to what you were saying earlier about how like the Prophet was saying that what's haram for you might not be haram for somebody else. And so like for him, Maybe like in his situation or his society that he was living in, the Muslims of that time, maybe to him he was dictating that that kind of attachment to the mm. of what he was seeing, and so in that case it was haram or it was forbidden for them, and that's why you have to be like separated or indifferent from it. But as we move forward in society, I think like obviously things change, even from country to country in certain Muslim societies, and so the definition of that of, of what applies to who also changes. From borough to borough. <laughs> I'm just in New York, right? I mean, ah, uh, and this actually is a responsible way, maybe in an rahma, like to look at what someone's written or left as a legacy, in a in a merciful way, yeah. That it it obviously is addressing something that's important to his time and that maybe we're not seeing, and he wouldn't. We should not expect him to be able to speak to us. 'll say like it's the same fruit we had in dunya people in Jannah, it'll be a little different yeah that's a good point mashallah so we're going to finish up soon because we almost reached an hour but let's just read a little bit more he said so in kayfa المطلوبة عند الإنسان بمنزلة النار أو بمنزلة الجيفة المستقذرة المستحلة والبنية بنيتها وطبع طبعنا. He said, how 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 is it going to be possible to like look at the dunya the way that you're talking about when our nature is to like it, man? More or less, I'm summarizing. Like it appeals to us. So he responds. He says, فَعْلَمْ أَنَّ مَنْ وَافَقَ التَّوْفِيقَ الْخَاصِ وَعَلِمَ أَفَاتَهَا وَقَذَرَهَا فِي أَصْلِهَا فَتَصِيرُ عِنْدَهُ كَذَلِكَ And as I said earlier, he says, you know, in the importance of education, whoever has been guided successfully and sincerely and they understand 
the shortcomings of this dunya and the filth of this dunya from its essence, then it will be that way to that person. Perhaps a, a, a way to think about this is they will see it as a means and not the goal. Right? To understand it as a means, not a goal. And that there are components of it that are good, and there are components of it that are bad. And we talked about what do we use to understand that? Fiqh. What's halal is haram. Halal is haram is haram. What's makru is makru. What's mubah is mubah. And then he says, وَإِنَّمَا يَتَعَجَّبَ مِنْ هَذَا الرَّاغِبُونَ الْأُمِّيَانِ عَنْ عُيُوبِ الدُّنْيَا وَأَفَاتِهَا الْمُخْتَرُّونَ بِظَاهِرِهَا وَزِينَتِهَا And he said the only people who fall for the okey-doke, more or less, this of course he didn't say that, but I'm just embellishing. This is not a peer-reviewed translation. But the only people who fall for that game, the game of the dunya, are those who are blind and unable to see its reality. And those who hope in its, like its false promises. And are unable to notice its shortcomings. And they are muhtaruna bidahiriha, right? They are occupied and consumed with its shallow appearance. What they see from it, without going into the, 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 the deeper understanding of what it is. Wazinatiha and its ornaments. And he says, لذارك, He said, now I'm going to give an example that will kind of give you an idea of what I'm trying to say. What I like about him is that he is very deliberate in trying to explain himself. I appreciate that, right? Because sometimes he uses language and words that are like metaphors, rhetoric, analogies, parables. He have like a lot of different meanings. As we saw that one time we had all of like five different opinions which is like awesome. I guess it's really cool about what he said. <coughs> so he says something, and I by no means am claiming to know the right answer to what he said earlier, by the way. I think everyone here had something awesome to share. He says, I'm going to give you an example of what I'm trying to say. He said the example of this, of the dunya. And my prince is really old. Umar was say, Anna Hada Yumathilu, huh? Yumathilu be in Sanin. Sona Habisan. You know what is Habisa? Halawayan. Habisa is like, not, not, no, no, not Habis, man. Habisa, Fadda. Yeah, it's like a cookie or a piece of cake, like some kind of sweet, right? From those times. What does it say in the footnotes, Umar? Yeah, it's a type of. Man, I'm getting hungry. <laughs> Let's just say a piece of cake to make it easy for everybody, okay? Because if we say the rice, ghee, date, sweet, maybe hard for people to follow. Or just a sweet dish. He says, you must have be insane. My prince is so old. Be insane and sonna habisan be shara etihi minal mina sukr wagiri. So you say, you know, like the example that I'm going to give you is like someone who makes his sweet and they, like with all the, con the ingredients that are needed, he uses shara, it means like, what do you need to make it? For example, like uh, uh, sugar. Thumma taraha fihi qitatun minha ma'a. And then the person puts some poison in it. So you have this nice sweet, looks good, mashallah, it's time to go down. But they put like a little bit of poison into it. Or there's poison there. Nam, nam. So he says, وَطَرَحَ فِيهِ قِطْعَةُ القاتلة صح؟ القاتل وأبصر ذلك الرجل ولم يبصره آخر and so somebody saw him do it and somebody didn't see him do it or someone knows that that person put poison in the sweet and another person doesn't know how will the person who knows 
that they put something in that sweet act with that dish. That's Zuhid in dunya. That's his example now. So Imam Ghazali, I'll put us on blast. <laughs> right? like, it's like, wow, that's a, lot to, that's a lot to swallow. But the person who doesn't know that there is poison in that dish, what are they going to do? Yeah. They're just going to like, with impunity, they're not going to be uh, strategic. They're just going to go ham. That's true. People still fall for it, though. Right? Build on that. What do you mean by that? That's, that's very interesting. I just mean that, like, in society, like, had, like halal is so, I mean, haram is so normalized that halal is seen as, like, um, restrictive or, um, I don't know, like, like so oppressive. Mm. And so, like, the poison is what's glorified, like, as in, like, the drinking lifestyle or the college experience kind of rhetoric or anything along that lifestyle, like it's made to seem so fun and nice to like practice or be in relationships or, you know, do the bad things so that you can like gain experience. And that's what people do as far as it, it is making the mistakes so that they can have fun. And that's what seems is fun. And so you do have to be actively like rejecting it in order to gain some kind of um, goodness or connection to Allah. That's very powerful. You're shaking your head, you want to... Oh, I was shaking, yes. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, do you want to... Oh, yeah, or like living in luxury or thinking that living in luxury is ethical when people are obviously very much needy, very much starving. Like, yeah. I don't know. I just the, the way that it's all set up, it makes us feel like it's normal and it's like something that we can excuse ourselves for doing, but it's something that we have to remind ourselves every day is like we should be working against. <laughs> against what? Poverty. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, you know, I had a teacher from, from Azhar, Sheikh Ahmad Taharian, and I was in Egypt, and he came here, he came to New York. So he was telling me, Ya Suhaib, Sa'arhal, Ila New York, Qariban. He was like super excited, you know. So like, Mashi, you know, it's just New York, man, good luck. Then he came back, he passed away from COVID, he came back, and I was like, Kif kanat rihla? Like, how's the trip? And he's like, Man, I saw something in America I've never seen before. This one I realized American opulence is no joke. And, and there's two moments that happened. When I came back and I realized how big plates were. Like when you live overseas for a long time, plates ain't big. Here, plates are huge at restaurants, right? There it's just like, be happy with what you got. Right? So I said, what? What did you see, Sheikh? He said, there's a place over there where you pay one fee and you can stay and eat as long as you like. Yeah, he said, Summit buffet. It's called a buffet. And I was like, Yeah, Sheikh, like, I grew up with that. He's like, La, You grew up like that? So he said, La, hawla wa la Allah anki. May Allah forgive you. Because, <laughs> like, you eat like that. Who eats like that? He's like, like He's a very polite person, but I was like, Like, Bahatimiani, like, people eating like cows, man. And he was like, Wallahi, you pay one fee, you can stay all day and just eat and eat, and eat, and eat. I was like, man, Sheikh must have gone to Crown Kebab, man. <laughs> uh, no, he went to, I think, Golden Karal. Oh yeah, and, and, but he was like, I've never seen, like for us, you ask most people, Golden Corral is like not even nice. <laughs> but for him, it was like, they eat food like that. And people don't have food in, the, in Egypt, man. But they eat food like that. Like, that's crazy, and they don't, and he was saying like, people don't feel, like mas'uliya, like uh, responsible that they can eat like this and people don't have food. Vaccines, same thing, right? Majority of the world doesn't have access to the vaccine. Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. No, I was going to say that's also the fault of the West. Absolutely. Yeah, if you ask the people living in those countries that get like the vaccine administered by the Red Cross or the UN, the UNICEF or whatever, they don't care. Like they will give them used needles, dirty needles, infected things like <laughs> La ilaha illallah. Yeah. yeah no no I mean here and, and they didn't release the patent on it you know they made it hard for people to have access to it right that's not how's history gonna remember this time right that's kind of like how I like to frame sort of his discussions on like being opulent to the point that I don't care about people it's crazy 
That's a little insane. A few days ago, I, was, I prayed on 100 and, uh, 120th, Imam Ibrahim. And uh, afterwards, I was walking outside, and there was an individual who was uh, from the, I believe, from the Ivory Coast. And he was, he was talking to people. And then he saw me, and he started talking in Arabic. I was like, man, <laughs> why are you talking to me in Arabic, man? <laughs> like, <laughs> so, his Arabic was good, man. So we started talking. And then, and then actually he told me he was from the Ivory Coast. And then as we were talking, he was like, I need Musa'ada. Like, I need, like, some financial help. And honestly, I didn't have anything. I was like, bro. And then he was like, Gazma, Gazma, Gazma. He pointed down. He didn't have any shoes on, man. And one of the brothers from the masjid was like, you ain't got no gazma? He's like, yalla, we're going to Burlington right now. And that brother said, listen, man, somebody ask you for shoes? Don't say no, man. You know, just drop everything. And he took him to, uh, to Burlington, right? But like, people caught up, man. And don't really, you know, you get too, we get too caught up in opulence to shine, takes away our ability to see who needs and to fulfill our responsibilities. So he says that the example of this is like this sweet from date, ghee, and other things. Sounds really delicious, mashallah. Sounds like halwa. Uh, he, and someone put poison in it, and one of the people, one of them notices it, and one of them doesn't notice. And then, and then suddenly it's presented to them, the sweet, the one who knows that there's something in it that's poisonous and the one who doesn't. Of course, they're going to act differently. So the variable that Al-Ghazali is getting at is knowledge, to understand, to know. Right? And some of the things that you're talking about, right, that demands an awareness of what's going on in the world. Dirty needles? Right? But if I'm too caught up in the shine of what's going on, I'm not paying attention to the people who need things. There's a hadith in Bukhari that you'll be helped according to the weakest amongst you. Like how you help them. Then he says, Rahimahullah. Now, khalas, we're going to stop here because this, this proverb, he's going to go on. And the next week we won't have our class. And then I think we'll pick it up on probably on Zoom once the... the uh, semester is over. Any questions, thoughts, and comments, we can take them, inshallah ta'ala.